All right, now I'm recording good. Let's pull that up. That'll happen on Friday online, on your online day. If you, well, you're probably the only one in public. Who, is anybody else in public administration right now? Yeah, so it'll look similar. That's right, you're in there too. Brooklyn, did you leave the door open? We shut that, thanks. I can hear other professors. I actually came in after. <laughs> it's your fault. Okay, exam one. Yeah, that's telling us a lot. Should we look? Let's look here. Oh, there's the review. It's one through seven in Cronin and Genevieve, so that after today, that's the material for the first test. Okay, and then everything else, well, then we'll be off the material for second and two. I, I set up a group study guide, so anyone else who okay. wants to just, e just email or text me. Text Elijah if you want to be part of the group study. Is it like on Google? It's on Google Drive, yeah. Okay. So my, it's Larson, my number is 505. 505. Yep. 860. Okay. 0198. 0198. And then we're just assigning everyone to answer one chapter's questions. And since we're over now, now oh, we're this is your phone number. That's my phone number. And so just send me your Gmail. <laughs> If you want it, so this is, text him if you want to be part of the, the, the group. So, you guys are welcome to, just don't communicate while you're taking yeah, the exactly. test. <laughs> hey group, I'm on number, so all, all the way up to when you take it, not during when you're, not actually when you're taking it. This is the greatest support group ever, I just phone a friend. So basically, it's 70 minutes, multiple choice, true, false. I gave you kind of the old study guide with some questions that I used um, in the past. In the past, it was a multiple choice, true, false, and then like an essay question. So I was already kind of generating multiple choice, true, false from these anyways. So that's just kind of guide you focus on theories, main concepts, terms, that kind of stuff. Questions, comments, concerns? Man, you guys are an easy, an easy group today. Yeah. Is it on Proctorial or is it just? No. You don't, have, you don't have to do anything with your eyes. You can look around. You could, you could run to the bathroom. Just the only stipulation, do it yourself, yeah. You can look at you can look in your book, you can look at your notes, you can look on Canvas, you can look you can look stuff up online. You just need to do it by yourself. That's the that's the rule. Okay. I guess if you have other questions we can talk about it on Wednesday. Oh, oh, oh. The format is making this the grades go up. So my grades on tests have gone way up since COVID. So it's easier than kind of the normal test. But You'd still need to study, <laughs> study, study a little going in, and then be prepared to look stuff up that you can't, that you didn't remember from your study. Yeah. So I had a question about Fridays. Yes. Um, well, we didn't. We didn't have a discussion board or anything on Friday. I don't think. No, you did not. But uh, what do you think about the divided house thing? I think it's really cool. Like, I think it's really cool that Americans naturally, you know, we want a Congress that's different than our president. I don't know. I just, why do you think we do that? Because we're awesome. Why do you think we end up voting for divided? Yeah, like why? Like it looked like it's a tr at least in the last couple of years since Reagan, it looked like it's been almost a stable trend where, like the second half of the president's ladies, the second half of the president's like term, then we almost always have a split house and like a, the Congress is is Democrat and the president's Republican or Republican Democrat. What do you guys think in terms of the voters? Is that is that just a is that just a consequence of having two parties and having the battle between two parties? I mean, it's probably the isn't the cycle of like presidents tend to do bad in their in the mid yeah. elections. 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought up cycles. So that, that's probably part of it, is the cycle of, you know, now, you know, we have a two-party system. It's very competitive. It's, it's basically 50-50. And you end up with divided government a lot of the time. It's a, it's a nice check on power, mm -hmm. right? So I think, I think the founders would have, would have probably liked it. It's frustrating because we don't get a lot done sometimes because of the fighting that happens, right? Good question, though. Other thoughts? I mean, if you're the president, and, and you know, that whole chapter was about Congress, you yeah. want a unified Congress because when we look back in history, you're, it's going to be much easier for you to pass things. And then do you think, sorry, sorry for the follow up, but do you think Schlesinger, Schlesinger? His, it's a rough name. Yeah. Do you think he's just cynical? Or do you think he's got like merit in what he's saying about, you know, how the American people don't really know what's going on? No, I think he has merit. You think he has yeah. merit? Yeah, they don't know what's going on. They know a little bit, but unless you really follow it and study it, you don't know. Haven't you seen these interviews on the street that everybody does? Like Jay Leno and. Before Jay Leno retired, right? Nobody knows anything. I mean, you guys are you guys are better because yeah, you know, poly, the poli sci majors in particular because you guys are you're coming in here telling me stuff I haven't looked at my news right, so you're paying attention to what's going on. But good questions. Okay. Well, this will this should be this is going to be easier than yesterday. I had to deal with the giants. And Noah being 900 and whatever years old yesterday. And then somebody asked me about dinosaurs. I was teaching Sunday school. And then somebody asked me about dinosaurs. And uh, it was tricky. It was really tricky. So. <laughs> I gave him a good answer on all three of those. On all three of those things. Um, so. I don't want to live 900 years, I don't think. Can you imagine? Yeah, it's a long time. Not very many. I mean, early, you guys know the Bible history. Early In the early history of the Bible, they lived for very long, and then it's quickly shortened up, right? So by the time you're to Moses, I mean, Moses was like one, I think 120 or something. Yeah, that's, that's still pretty old, but not 900 or 700. Yeah. I like this. They didn't have the same problems. Genetically, <laughs> we've, we've, you know, things have changed. There's been um, more genetic diseases, that kind of thing. But back then, they were like as close to perfect physically as you could get. Being yeah. Fallen, and so it wasn't a problem back then. It wasn't until millions, thousands, and thousands and thousands of years of breeding that it became a problem. Yeah, I, I mean, that's as good an answer as any. You know, a lot of this stuff, it's just like God can do what he what, what he'll do. If he wants to make it so, he will, right? It's just funny, We like uh, people want to argue about these little things. I mean, you either believe in God or you don't believe in God. Um, and then you want to argue about these little tiny things, like how could this have happened? Well, he did create a, a planet and <laughs> out, of, out of matter and, you know, put human beings and did all this stuff. And then you want to argue about how could you, how could an ark happen? Right, it's silly, right? To me, it's just like kind of funny, but um, so yeah, you know, I've just sort of learned over the years. I, I mean, I, I think I know less. Of, I mean, this is true probably about politics too for me, and, and maybe in some ways some of the things in the gospel. I, I, I feel like in I feel like my testimony stronger than it's ever been. Like the personal experiences I've had have made my testimony really strong. But like some of the stuff, like. That we're, that, you know, we talk about in Sunday school lessons. I'm less sure about now <laughs> than I used to be, but it doesn't even really matter, <laughs> right? It doesn't matter. Um, the heart matters, and the testimony matters, and and uh, all that stuff. So um, that's what I that's what I focus on. But um, yeah, anyways, it's fun to talk. It's fun to speculate and talk about that stuff, though. I love it too. So. Uh, good times. How what? I want to just have a vigorous debate with my roommate about how luminescent God was. <laughs> nice. Nice. 
yeah, you know, we just don't have a lot, we, and we don't have a lot of answers, and we don't understand a lot of things, and and uh, there's a veil and uh, all that, all that great stuff. So, my advice to really everybody is focus on the focus on the core things and your testimony and and having spiritual experiences and doing what you're doing the things that you're supposed to do and being a good person and you'll have a great life if you do that great happy life so and you guys are going to go do wonderful things so um but yeah it's always fun uh to to have those lessons i wanted to talk about giants for a minute but they weren't into that they were more into the into the age thing so but um did anybody see the Did anybody see the Mel Gibson movie that they did about Noah's Ark a few years ago? Did they, I, th- I, I didn't never watch it. Did they took the giants thing like way too far because <laughs> they were like rock giants. That's funny. Uh, it kills me. You mean giants kind of like David and Goliath? Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. It talks about giants in the Old Testament. Right. Yeah. What do they call Nephilim? Yeah. So it's kind of interesting, but. Um, it's funny, I, you know, some of this stuff, we were talking about the Tower of Babel, they think the Tower of Babel was only 300 meters tall. So that's 30 stories, right? That's pretty tall for back then, but it's not like, even when you think about Tower of Babel, you're like, oh, it's this humongous thing. So maybe, you know, giants, there might have been, they might have just been taller, but not substantially taller too, right? Um, yeah, so, so that's fun. Okay, I was just going to, one more thing on the test, sidebar over. I just w- did anybody look to see when it opens? Do I probably open it? Why do I have? Why is it saying October? Am I lo- oh, I'm looking at an old version. So it opens on Tuesday? Okay, so you guys can get in and take it as as soon as you want. On, I mean, if you wanted to do it Tuesday, you would. You can. I would probably do it if I was you. Probably some Thursday or Friday. I'll give you some time to study. And then it closes what day? Friday at midnight. Okay. Okay. Well, I really like this this chapter. I think it's one of the fun chapters from the book. The president is charged to take care to faithfully execute the law. Okay. Five? That's when it closes. Oh, I don't want it to close at five. So when does it open? It opens at twelve tomorrow. It opens at twelve tomorrow. So so tonight at midnight. June, February eleventh at five p.m. Yeah, I'll fix it. So um, at the very end, will you guys just remind me, and I'll I'll when we get that, I'll literally get in here and just change it so I don't forget. I want it to close at midnight. That's better for you guys, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> you don't want it to close at five. So what is this chief executive role? The Article Two, Section One says the executive power shall be vested in the President of the United States. Presidents are charged to take care to faithfully execute the laws. Okay, great. When Washington came in, there's no cabinet. There's not even, there's the Constitution. There's no laws yet. As that stuff came, this got more and more, more and more complex. This, this role has really grown. Washington had one aide, and he paid him out of his own pocket. His nephew was his aide. <laughs> he, added, he added a cabinet, of course. And that has become the tradition. Today we have uh, the White House staff itself is over 500 people. There are 15 cabinet secretaries. And there's this huge executive branch with thousands of people in it. And then also you've got, if you, if you talk about like the private sector that works, private sector folks that really work with government to do things, this has grown enormously, right? Lots of civilian and military personnel um, as well. So. What is the paradox here for the presidential management? You guys remember that from the reading? You should be a really good manager. It's imp- if we can get a really good manager for president, that would be awesome. But what's the flip side of that? A lot of presidents don't have managerial experience, or maybe they weren't even trained in how to do that. Okay? So 
this would this would be a plus. This would go in the plus column for for if you're you know going back and looking at a guy like Trump, right? You say, well, okay, he does not have his his political experience is outside of politics. He's been involved in politics from from outside, but he's a business guy. He he should know some management stuff, and so that goes in the plus column. Um, not all not all presidents have that management experience. Elijah, question? do you think that's why like Eisenhower? Yeah, military experience would would go goes well here. I think. A guy like Eisenhower, um, you know, I'm biased because I teach public administration. If we could get a public, a trained public administrator, that would be even better. So, you know, a guy like Woodrow Wilson, who who wrote, <laughs> who was a college, a, a college professor and then a university president, and was the father of public administration. If you get somebody like that, that's really good. Um, uh, Bush, who we'll talk about later, Bush one who had management and government experience in lots of different areas, you know, that's, that's really good. So would you say like the main uh, sectors of the executive branch be the bureaucracy with the cabinet and the White House staff and the private sector? Yeah, you have, um, yeah, that's, I think that's the way to think about it. So you have the staff, it's kind of its own um, separate section and, and they operate differently in some ways. And then you have, you have the cabinet secretaries and then all the people that work in their departments. And then probably the third group would be maybe, well, maybe there's four groups. Maybe, the, maybe, maybe you think of the military as another group and then maybe a pri private entities that the, that the government works with as another. So you could kind of divide it up into four if you're gonna do it that way, think about it that way. So um, we evaluate them every day on how well they are running the government yet we recruit politicians. <laughs> Most presidents are indifferent managers. They have to work very hard to lead, inspire, manage, and regularly negotiate with countless members of you know, their own, the, this branch of government, of, of different countries, and all this stuff. So um, it's very, it can be very difficult. So when, as you guys are analyzing presidents, and we're, we're doing it all semester, and you're going into the voting booth throughout your life, you know, this is something to remember. Can this can this person manage people, or or not? Um, the president and the cabinet is very misunderstood. Um, this group has had a varying level of impact on policymaking. What do you think? So sometimes more effective, sometimes less effective. What do you think affects um, the ability of the cabinet and the president working together to get things done? What do you think limits that? Are there constitutional reasons? Yeah. I think one of them is that um, they have to be able to work together and the president has to trust them. And from what I read a little bit, sometimes appointments are made in the cabinet to, um, like, the other losing side sometimes because they lost. There's a, I don't know how to quite say this. He would appoint somebody from the opposite side as kind of a consolation, consolation prize or something, right? Consolation prize, yeah. And that potentially could have, you know, potentially he couldn't trust them. Or yeah. Like so, so I think that's right. So, so some of the people that we're putting in there are are maybe less effective because of the reasons they got to the position. So, so presidents should be very thoughtful about why. So when we just reward people that either campaigned for us or we're, we're putting people in positions to, as a favor to the other party or whatever, and not thinking about how effective is this person gonna be, that, that could be a problem for, for effectiveness, right? In, in the cabinet. So that's definitely, that's definitely something to think about. And, and think about like the cabinet working, what about the cabinet working together as a whole? Are there issues there as well? Yeah. I feel like some people may have more say Okay. Yeah, inner versus outer cabinet issues, like inner cabinet positions that we'll talk about here in a minute are going to have more, more power versus outer cabinet. The diversity of the group, the size of the group makes it difficult. Um, they, have, they have cabinet meetings. Usually what, what happens with presidents is they'll start out at the beginning and maybe bring everybody in. You're going to see an example with Obama here in a second. And then as time goes on, they don't have those big cabinet meetings as frequently, and they have smaller ones, or they'll do like one-on-ones with certain cabinet members. Would that cause issues for like communication? It could, yeah. yeah. By not having, by not bringing everybody in, yeah. 
Yeah, maybe. You've got to make sure that everybody has the pertinent information that they need. So is the um, process of making the captain positions appoint for political reasons kind of a bit of a, the spoil system still? Yes, the, well, that's what, I'm glad you brought that up because the spoil system essentially still happens at the cabinet level. It's not illegal. To, so, it's not illegal at the cabinet level to reward people for helping you. Who, who was it that wanted to get rid of one of their cabinet members and then uh, Congress threw a fit? Recently? No, no, no. Uh, oh, in the chapter? Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. You guys remember from the chapter? Do you remember who it was? I don't remember who it was, but it was Andrew Johnson, who was the one who's, that's the guy who succeeded uh, Lincoln, right? Uh, he had a secretary of war, which was basically a pawn of Congress, and Congress was like, all right, then we're going to get this guy in That's who it was. So they made it illegal for him to fire him. Andrew Johnson fired him anyways, and they're like, oh, he broke the law. Thank you, That's right. So you know, the whole Johnson story, right? Yeah, yeah, that's one. But wasn't it? Why? Well, I don't get why it was a why why it was bad what he did because you know the president has the right to choose who's in the cabinet. Right. Yeah. Anyway. Um. Okay. What about what about turnover? Do you think that impacts? Mm -hmm. For sure. There's about a two and a half year turnover rate, mm -hmm. and sometimes it can be faster. You guys, you know. You just saw you just saw a whole uh, four years with Trump. Biden's Biden's not had a lot of turnover yet, but he's new. He's newer, so you'll start to see people in and out. Um, was public opinion affected as well? Because I know, like for Obama, there was uh, and Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. Yeah. And then, um, with Trump, he had like John Bolton, and a lot of people like Bolton, and like there's a lot of like different public opinions on different cabinet members. Yeah, absolutely. So public opinion, politics, media, all this stuff is going to impact the effectiveness of the cabinet. Okay, so if you're looking for, um, in terms of like, you're, let's say you're advising a new president that's coming in, what, are, what advice are you giving them on terms of, in terms of who do you appoint? What are some things you're going to look for? Yeah? Past experiences. Okay, so if we're... So a little, maybe expertise. Okay. Experience. If we're putting someone in, emer in emergency management, maybe that's, maybe we should get somebody with experience with, right, with that area. It also talked about them being generalists, like being able to work with different departments and be flexible and skilled. Yeah. So like, Political skill, maybe flexibility, uh, people person would be good. Other thoughts? Um, where they're from? Yes, regional concerns. Why do you why do you have to worry about this? Because uh, like Midwesterners, like the book says. Um, could be better candidates for uh, like agriculture. Yeah, maybe maybe based on what's happening in that region or tradition, um, you know, maybe they're better equipped to do the job, whatever, based on based on the region. Okay, what else? Do you, are issues of diversity important here? How how have we been doing? You think? Like le recently. No, but like in terms of the cabinet, yeah, you know we we are better. It has been, it has been improving in Congress. How, how have you guys looked closely at what at anything Biden's done here? Not really. Yeah, we're doing better um, for the most part. I, you know, I thought Obama and, and obviously you have a, you have a minority president there. He did a, he did a really good job. Um, Bush did a pretty good job actually um, with some. With diversity in the cabinet, so I think uh, I think Biden chose a uh, our, our Secretary of Defense is I think Captain America. Yeah, so Biden is pretty diverse actually. Yeah, but he's an Attorney General. Yeah, you want to, so you want to think about you want to think about that diversity and, and giving opportunities to different groups and and men and women and those types of things and and as you're as you're as you're appointing. Not just because, I, I mean, on the face of it, I think diversity is just good. 
but you've also in, in those different categories you've got great people and so why not you know let's put them in in positions they've got experiences that other people don't have as well okay what about loyalty is loyalty important absolutely loyalty you have to you this has to be you have to vet this person this has to be somebody that can be confirmed so you're gonna you're gonna make sure that they don't have too many skeletons in the closet and then they can get they can get confirmed um, and then you, we talked about already but kind of this idea of you know putting in specialists versus generalists right there might be certain positions where you want a generalist versus a specialist right okay um, most people are let me ask you this most people are going to be from your party right okay where is there is there anywhere in the cabinet that, where there's a tradition of not being as so party centered the military is one and and the intelligence stuff they have a tradition of leaving being very nonpartisan and leaving folks so let's say like the CIA directors in there already, and you're a you're a Republican coming in, and you 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 probably might leave that person, right? So all the most of the other ones you're gonna you're gonna move out of there. Not state because state state is more of a a party position. So is that part of the reason maybe why like you have these articles that talk about how um, I forget it was this one of the um, Generals in the army, he was making sure um, Trump wasn't appointing different, like a partisan persons to the CIA. Stuff like that. Is that partially because of the culture of that? Those yeah, people? it's partially because of the culture for sure. Yeah, and then law enforcement, like the law enforcement stuff, like the FBI and all that stuff. Um, that's a little, that's a little less partisan as well. Okay, so what the the next part of the book talks about what makes a good cabinet member. So it's kind of similar to this stuff. You know, loyalty, expertise. Are you a good overall manager? Can you can you figure out what the president needs? You, you have to work. You have to work with Congress too. So you you've got to be good at working with the president and then going to Congress because they have oversight and then and then managing all those people in your in your in your position. Um, are you able to follow through on the presidential policies without watering them down and getting things done that way? Okay. Do you have, and then they have another section that talks about how, the, how they're evaluated that's kind of related to, can you recruit talent to your, your uh, position? Can you handle interest groups? Did you bring prestige to the department? Do you handle the press well? Do you have fresh initiatives and ideas? Are you an asset or a liability? Okay. So, the, one of the issues is, so we have thousands of people that work in, in government, right, in these, in these different departments. And those, a lot of those folks at the very top level have to get confirmed in the Senate. And that can take, that can take that's taking up to 2.5 to 3 years to do now, to get all those done. <laughs> so now they'll, they'll usually go in there and start working, but it would be nice to, to be able to to speed that process up, and I don't, I don't know, I don't know what the easy answer is for that. When you have so many positions and they need to be, I don't know, maybe there could be some kind of a a process where we could streamline some of that stuff. But if you had like a representative majority of Congress, so like you took like let's say if there's like five, if there's instead like, of letting the whole con do, yeah. you know, just have a committee do it. Yeah, that's a great idea actually, or or get or or as soon as the president's as soon as a, pre a new president's elected, start the process. Or like, let's say, yeah. like, if there's like a two-vote majority in like Congress for the Republicans, then you just have like five people, and you have three Republicans and, yeah. and two Democrats. Yeah, and they don't argue about all of them, but it just still takes a lot of a lot of time. Okay, so do you guys remember the discussion of inner versus outer cabinet? So inner is. State, defense, treasury, justice. 
So things, outers like things like agriculture, interior, transportation, commerce. What do, what do they mean by inner versus outer cabinet? Who's closer to the president's ear? Who's going to have the president's ear? And these are the and these are the most powerful positions, right? Money, law, <laughs> defense, and domestic or international relations, basically, right? Where the biggest decisions are made, those are going to, those are going to have the, the the most impact, and so they become traditionally known as the inner cabinet. So, like the outer cabinets, they're not as Yes, that's what it means. Is they're just not as involved with it. Not that they're not important. They're just they're not gonna they're not gonna be talking to the president as much. They're not gonna be in the one on ones with the president as much. Um, and you're gonna put your most important, most powerful people in these positions, right? So, what about homeland security? No, they're their own department. Yeah. So it's actually her newest. It's not new anymore, but it's came after 9/11. I kind of, depending on how they're used, I kind of put them right here. I think in a lot of ways they're sort of inner. They straddle inner outer. Then we dumped all the intelligence agencies and and all the emergency management stuff inside of Homeland Security too after 9-11. So I'd probably lean towards calling it an almost an inner cabinet position. Where would education be? Ed's, yeah, down here. So these are the these are the these are the only ones. These four. And then whatever you think about Homeland Security. So was President Benson not as big of a player as sometimes we think he was? <laughs> yeah. No. I mean they're all big players, I guess, in a sense, but not, yeah, he's not Henry Kissinger. <laughs> yeah, so, um, okay. What about, um, so yeah, it's really, the, the key difference is really about, it's really about access to the president and, and not having access. These people are just gonna meet with the president much, much more. Okay, so let's watch our little video. Like I said, I, I apologize, I mean, I'm, I've become the, I'm starting to realize why professors show old videos. You find, what happens is you, you, you folks that are doing education, you find stuff that you like and then you're like, I, I like that video more than nothing comes along to replace it and then it's been 15 years and you're still showing the old video, right? So this is, a, I just hadn't, didn't find anything that I like better than this one. So this has nothing to do with anything other than that. But it's a good look at kind of cabinet meetings. The young Obama. Great Wall was very cool. I was going to say. One of the things I'm most proud of is the cabinet we've assembled. I mean, you've got extraordinarily talented people in each of these fields. A lot of them are doing such a good job that they don't meet with me much because uh, they're like the good students in class. <laughs> they are just handling their business really well. Well, uh, hello everybody. It is good to see you guys. We try to do a cabinet meeting every two months. The meetings run about an hour and a half. What we'll do is talk to a lot of different folks within the White House, uh, the policy folks, the chief of staff's office, the communications office, uh, and find out what are the important initiatives that we want to talk to the cabinet about, um, and also talk to the cabinet as well about the issues that they think are important to discuss with the president. Um, so there's a series of internal meetings to discuss that. We, yeah, uh, hammer out an agenda after that. Iraq, Afghanistan, the Asia trip, jobs. I think I think that there should probably be more, robust discussion of job creation. This is a huge kind of six, seven weeks that's coming up, um, and a lot of the budget and the, obviously the board decision and a bunch of other things are coming down the So each president has the discretion to decide who is in his cabinet. Um, there are the, the heads of the 15 executive departments who are always in the cabinet. These are the people who are in the line of succession after the president and vice president. And then there are a number of folks uh, who have cabinet rank. Uh, in our administration, that would be the head of OMB, EPA, the 
the Chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, the U.S. Trade Representative, and the Ambassador to the United Nations. We had that coffee service in the past. Maybe because it's an afternoon meeting, they want to give them a little caffeine. I'm not sure. I've worked for the president since he was in the U.S. Senate, so I'm very used to sitting behind him at meetings. But to now sit uh, in a cabinet meeting uh, in the historic cabinet room, you're just surrounded by the history of this, this institution. It's humbling. Cabinet offices were created as soon as the Constitution was ratified. The government was established in 1789 under the new Constitution. The first cabinet meeting, I, I understand, from 1793, the president had his four cabinet members there. We now have 25 people around the table. Each of the cabinet members um, sit in a certain seat depending on when their apartment is created. It's still tradition that a cabinet officer had the opportunity of taking the chair away uh, himself or herself to buy the chair from the government. It's one of those great souvenirs of being a cabinet officer. The cabinet meeting is one of the few times that I'm aware of where the Secret Service allows the entire cabinet to be in one place at one time. As you know, during State of the Union addresses, we typically ask one member of the cabinet to sit out. These are closed sessions, and the president really welcomes frank, uh, unwarranted uh, advice from the advisors. I want to, number one, make sure that they know that they have my aid. The second thing is to reinforce a real strong sense of camaraderie that the cabinet members have built among themselves. Yeah. That was well, well enough, but I, when, I, when I hung him, it means a lot more yeah. than sending him an email. There still is something to the, the human interaction that you only get from in-person meetings. Well, I, I don't think there's any substitute for the entire cabinet coming together. These cabinet meetings are an incredible way for everybody to communicate, for everyone to really understand what the issues are and to help us all get on the same page so that we can advance the president's priorities. Today we're going to be focusing a lot on jobs uh, because obviously with the economy is in, in such a hole. Uh, one of the things that we want to make sure of is, is that we leave no stone unturned when it comes to helping people get jobs. What we've typically done is bring the president at the end of the meeting. The cabinet meeting is an important symbol of government at work. The primary focus of our discussion today, though, had to do with the same thing that Americans uh, sit across kitchen tables all across the country are focused on, and that is jobs and the economy. You would think that in a world like the one we're living in, where you can communicate with anybody in the world at literally a flick of a mouse or you know, some other picking up a cell phone, that you wouldn't need a lot of face-to-face -face meetings. But in fact, I think that uh, it's not only as important as it always was, in the era before uh, instantaneous communication, but to some extent even more so, so that people can look each other in the eye, they can watch the body language, and they can work together to get uh, to the resolution of whatever the issue is. So these cabinet meetings um, give everybody a chance to do that. This is one of the things problems that people walk out of here without the blackberries. So now I have to actually go find out who all these blackberries belong to. So, all right, so Chu has walked out without a Carol Dalton. That just dated it. Blackberries. So, yeah, blackberries were. Yeah, so I think I think that was like 2000. And... Two thousand and nine-ish for that video. So it's a good it's a good kind of inside look. Okay. Let's talk about gosh, there's so much in this chapter. Let's talk about because I just want to make sure I do this. Let's talk about presidential management styles. And then we'll see what else we have time for. Basically, you have you have two kind of models that we talk about. You have the hierarchical model, we'll use a triangle for that. 
for this hierarchy. So then you have the circular model. So the president here is at the top, and the in the circular model will put the president in the middle. And so the whole thing, the, the manager style is basically talking about who has access to the president. How does how do people and then and also information, how does that get to the president? Okay? In the hierarchical model, there's a chain of command, right? And it flows up the organization and then it the chief of staff here. Your chief of staff acts as kind of a gatekeeper to manages that flow of information and people into into the, those that can see the president. Okay, so what? Who do you think? What kind of information and what kind of people do you think the chief of staff? How's the chief of staff going to decide who gets to who or what gets to get to the president's ear? What's important and what's not important, right? The big ideas, the big, um, the big things, and and the important people, and not not everything else, right? That's that's sort of how they that, how they focus that um, management style, okay? Um, so, do you, what do you guys think in terms of what do you like about the hierarchical model? Oh, Republicans tend to do this one. Okay. And it's very kind of macro management. What do you what do you think would be good about this management style? Yeah. The president can focus on the most important aspects. Focus, most important things. Yeah, kind of going off that it's filters. Filters. Yeah. You do need you do need to have a good chief of staff that knows what he or she is doing because there's a lot of power in that role. So you could have some potential problems there. But as long as that's taken care of, that could be pretty good. There's you know where you know where the accountability is as you look down through the organization. Presidents have limited time. They can focus on, on certain things. I feel like it gives a lot more autonomy almost to the cabinet members. Because if they can't get through the oh, yeah. staff to the president, they have to figure out autonomy. Yeah, autonomy to the other people can take care of the things. They don't have to bring everything to the president. They can take care of the things themselves, the, the priorities themselves, and do get things done. Okay, anything else? That's pretty good. What are potential problems here? Yeah. Corruption. <laughs> Corruption. Doesn't know what. Yeah, what if you don't know what certain things that are going on? What if, what if information doesn't go, get up the chain of command? What if your chief of staff isn't operating in the way uh, that you need them to operate, right? Okay. What if, what if certain ideas are filtered that needed to get to the president's ear and didn't get to the president's ear, right? So a really good example of this is, well, depending on, depending on who you believe, the Iran-Contra affair, right? <laughs> So, some of you, some of you know what the Iran Contra affair is. Some of you don't, right? But basically, um, we sold weapons to Iran to get money. This and this didn't go through Congress. The executive branch did it, which is illegal, right? This is Reagan. Okay. So we sold weapons through to Iran to to fund uh, an anti-communist group in Nicaragua, right? Um, all this is illegal. People went to jail for this. I remember watching the trials in, in high school. Right, um, Reagan came out with a weird. If you've ever seen it, um, we'll talk about it later when we do him. A so, sort of strange apology, uh, where he where he essentially said, "I didn't really know what was going on." Right. Well, if you didn't know what was going on in your own in your own executive branch, well, that's a failure of this model. Wait, right? so who, did people in the cabinet go to jail? No, it was it was it was military folks mainly that ended up going to Why jail. Why would they go to jail? Because they were the they were the ones they were the ones that were fronting this doing this deal. Oliver North was probably the most famous person that went to jail, who later had a long career on Fox News. Um, yeah, maybe we're gonna bring up Ollie, Ollie North. He's probably the most famous one that went to jail. But um, so 
I mean, I, I kind of go back and forth. I believe, knowing what I know about Reagan and Reagan's presidency, I believe that he, I believe that it's very plausible that he didn't know. Um, that, he, that he didn't, obviously didn't know a lot of things, but I'm, I'm suspicious that maybe he did know more than he lets on. So that's not, that's kind of a non-answer. <laughs> but he certainly said that he didn't really know. But if he didn't, there's a problem with this model, okay? All right, so Democrats usually choose the circular model, also known as the spoke to the wheel model. And the chief of staff is just one, another person on the outside of the, the wheel here. They don't really act as a gatekeeper, okay? And then you have you know, different cabinet, you know, people, staff people, It's not, it's still organized. You know, you still have to make an appointment probably with the president and all that stuff. You don't just run into his office or her office. Um, there's just, the chief's not gonna just filter you like they would in the hierarchical model. And you're gonna have more access, informa more information's gonna come into the president, ideas and things like that, right? Um, so that's the, the basic difference here. What do you like about this model? Yeah. It appears to be democratic. Democratic in the sense, not the party, but in the sense that you're more, yeah. more, uh, more people, more ideas. Yeah. Empowers employees. Lots of ideas. Maybe, maybe an idea pops up that the president hadn't really thought about. Yeah. I feel like it also kind of addresses one of the paradoxes where people like feel like they're unfamiliar with the president or they don't really know who they are and can't really relate, whereas this allows them to feel more. Uh, more among the actual government and the people that he's working with. Yeah, so the, the really, a really good historical example, so you had the, um, I'm forgetting his name right now, but an, uh, the ambassador that had been, you had an, during Kennedy's time, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, you had an ambassador in the meeting um, who may not, you know, normally have been in a meeting because you're allowing lots of access that was able to give some perspective about Khrushchev that was crucial in solving the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, so a good example of this kind of management style. This is very micro management. That's, the, that's you know, a potential problem here is that you're doing too much. Too much information. You don't have time to, to deal with all these people and all these, all these ideas. Um, FDR, and we'll talk about FDR's management style when we get to him. He liked to have all kinds of, you know, cabinet members come in and they would debate and argue in front of him and it was very chaotic and unorganized. That's, and then he would judge and choose and all that. That's FDR. FDR so would that did that. Like the downside then? Like yeah. A little unorganized, uh, waste time, things like that are, are, the, are the downside. Um, in terms of the, of the micromanagement, this is kind of the funniest, funny, funny but true micromanagement president's doing too much is that when Jimmy Carter was president of the United States, he actually scheduled the tennis courts himself. You called the president to, to play on the White House tennis courts. You, that sounds crazy, right? <laughs> but it's true. You know, you can go too far with doing too much, and Jimmy Carter certainly did that a lot of the time. So you want to be careful not to do that. Now, most presidents, you know, they'll choose kind of one or the other, and then they'll, they'll try to make up for the deficiencies, right? So here, you'd say, this can be a little chaotic and organized. What can we do to make it more organized, right? And maybe we limit, maybe we want, maybe we want the circular model, but we don't want quite as much access, so we try to tweak it a little. Here, to get it around this, what could you do? Go outside of the formal structure. If president, call people on the phone. Show up at people's offices or, or invite them to come see you that, and even maybe violate the chain of command sometimes to make up for, for the hierarchical model. So, um, yeah, Republicans or Democrats will kind of choose one and then, and then do sort of hybrid things to make up for the problems. So it's a good way to think about um, president management style. Okay. What about... Chapter has a little bit on, should we talk about first ladies for a second? Sure. So the first lady, 
Under Hillary Clinton, when Hillary Clinton was the first lady, this became a formal position in the government. So, so if some people think that this is not an actual position. It is. There's, you have a staff. There's, there's a budget and all that stuff, right? Um, you have sort of the traditional versus the activist. First ladies. So activists would mean we're going to give the first lady something actually to do, right? They're going to they're going to work on issues. So with Hillary Clinton, when she was first lady, she worked on health care, right? Um, Michelle, what are, what did Michelle Obama work on when she was first lady? Ruining lunches. <laughs> Nutrition, right? Yeah. So so that's the activist. Um, what is Jill Biden working on? Who do we know yet? Does she have a formal thing that she's? She's work. She's working on it. She's working on it. Um, so, and I think you can kind of. I mean, I think the modern first ladies will all have. How will have some kind of activist things, but I think you can kind of put them in categories, right? Melina do immigration. Yeah, but I. But for me, Melania was Melania is sort of more of a kind of a traditionalist first lady. Yeah, she she did a few things, but she wasn't really out there trying to. Hillary Clinton was in charge of health care in, in, in the, in the, during that presidency. So that's, that's really activist. So that's the difference between kind of traditional and, and activist first ladies. Okay. Um, what do you guys think? Should the first lady be active? Or we might as well use them, right? But she yeah. wasn't elected. She wasn't elected. So that, that would be kind of the counter argument. I think, I think you... I think you do it sort of. You're getting the team. Why not use her? Um, I think if you, I think if it's, I think it gets pretty controversial when you are, you know, it's the Hillary Clinton and they're they're the face of the a huge bill like healthcare change. People are going to push back on that a little bit. But there, there's there's things that probably aren't quite that strong that are good things, policy things that the first lady could be doing. So you know, the traditional role is that you know picking out the dishes and and the Christmas tree and and Make it, figuring out what we're going to eat when the when uh, Angela Merkel shows up from Germany, or you know whatever, right? So, um, I think you probably now in the modern era want them doing both and give them a little more active role um, as well. So, okay, um, the first lady does not receive a salary, but there's a lot of money that goes into. It is a formal position in the government, and there's a lot of money that goes into the, um, you know, working for the first lady. Yeah. They have a job. Like, they already had a job before their husband became president. They keep their job. They no. They usually will. They'll. They'll stop doing it. Yeah, they have to. Um, think about. Well, think about the Trumps. And, and Trump was, and we've had other folks do this. Trump was interesting because. Not only did you get a first lady, but he, you wanted to, he wanted to put his kids, and he did. He didn't just want to. He put his kids in positions, right? But in order to do that, they had to do what? Stop. That you have to divest of all your business interests and stop doing. Um, it's actually against the law if you're, if you in certain in certain ways if you're still working, because obviously you have so much power, right? Um, you know, uh, Vice President Cheney. Very, very. You know, when, he, when he became vice president for Bush, you know, strong, important businessman. You know, multimillionaire, lots of money. He had to divest everything and, and put and you put it away. You lock it away until after you're after you're done being president, and then you can come back and if you want to go back into business, you can. But that's how they kind of protect that stuff. Great question. Okay, one other thing before we get out of here. There's a section. Wish we could six be its own lecture. Um, there's a section kind of kind. There's a section kind of on the rise of the administrative president. So kind of what are the what are the tools? And a lot of these tools are extra constitutional tools that presidents use to to have power. Um, big list here. So one is executive orders.
Where does the Constitution talk about executive orders? It does not talk about executive orders. So my big issue is not, and I'm a constitutionalist when it comes to presidential power, it's not in the Constitution. It's what we were trying to get away from with the king. Um, if it has to do with just like, okay, we have a new law and this is how you're supposed to carry it out, that's fine. But if it's, I'm making this executive order as a, as a law, I don't think that's constitutional. Okay? Yes, and I'll sketch yeah. yes, I show that sometimes in the class. Um, I show it in Congress. The, um, I'm just a bill. I'm just an executive order. Um, the, the other problem is one president does the executive orders, and this has happened with Biden. And Biden's undoing all of Trump's executive orders now. So it's just silly. You go from one to the other, undoing it to putting new ones in, and then the other president comes in, and they undo those, and it's nonsense. I was going to see. So you obviously said you didn't like when it comes to instituting a law, but just curious, still basically a law, but your opinion on regulations within government, so if it's a new policy for regulating government agencies or such. I'm, is it a regulation? Yeah, I probably still have a problem. Yeah, if, if, if it's a regulation that would be better left to Congress to put in place, I, I would prefer that they do it. Um, if it's just, you know, kind of filling in the details of how to carry something out a little bit and it doesn't, you know, there's a, that gray area there, it, I, I'm more okay with those types of situations. Okay, signing statements. What's a signing statement? These go back a long ways. They've gotten worse. So when the president goes to sign a bill, a signing statement is they write a directive right below their signature. Okay, Does it, sounds weird, right? <laughs> Not constitutional. Court hasn't thrown either of these out, though. Why haven't they? I, that's a good question. They need to. They need to take them. Yeah. So, like they're signing a bill, and then after they sign it, then they make a change in the. They could. Some of these signing statements might make a change that says, "I, I am directing this part of the law not to be followed." This so part it's of like this. A PS. It's like a PS. That's can, a good way to think can, about can it. Congress go back and override that with the two thirds. Well, no. It's, that's the weird thing is because it's not. A, it's he's not vetoing the bill. He's just he's just writing a, a, a PS statement at the end of it, telling his telling his executive branch folks what they should follow or not follow in the in the law. Okay, again, so if this is just if this is how how do we carry this out? These are the instructions. I'm okay with that. If it's don't follow this part of the law and follow these parts, that's a problem for me. Okay, you have executive agreements, lots of different executive agreements where the where the Senate doesn't have to ratify these that are extra. So essentially what we were talking about China and Russia, right? Didn't what they didn't what they just do, isn't that just isn't that an executive agreement? Right? There's nothing I haven't made what if I don't I don't make a formal treaty. I just go meet with I go meet with Putin myself and we make some kind of a deal, right? That I don't have to have that ratified. So presidents will use those um, as well. Um, presidential memorandum, presidential proclamations. So I got a question on that. So when you say about like executive agreements, doesn't that come to an extent to like if a president overuses that? For instance, like the whole first impeachment with Trump with the whole deal with Ukraine, wouldn't that be considered again this like executive agreement at the time? And then like but people in the public defense, like, oh, that's using the power. Well, no, he, so you, you to take off if you want, but go right out of time. But he was actually impeached for not, they didn't, for asking them to investigate Biden. Oh. Yes. Yeah. He didn't really make an agreement. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Okay. On Wednesday, I'm going to talk about chapter four, because remember last week I wasn't here. Um, if you didn't read it, go read it. If you did, maybe just go back and take a peek at it. And I'll probably, probably spend maybe a half an hour on that. And then the last half an hour of class will open up for just study for the exam. So kind of open it up. And if you guys have questions, if you want to, do, if you want to break out in groups for a second, we can do that. Thanks.
Hey, have a great day. Am I not gonna see you before then? Yeah, you're not coming home before then. Yeah. All right, shoot me a text or call me. Thanks, Dr. Rose. Hey, thanks, Elijah. Good to see you. Good to see you too. So, have you picked a present? Well, I was thinking JFK because so I thought it would be easy, but then now I'm like, now I don't know if it's easy. Well, easy in the terms of there's lots of information on JFK. Yeah, yeah. there is. Yeah. Um, I know what you said we need like five scholarly articles, and when I was trying to find one, I could find ones like on his site or something, but like him specifically, that's probably not. Yeah, you should be able to. Oh, okay. should be, there should, so, how are you doing? Are you going into the library? Yeah, so I just went to like the Expo thing, and I just like looked at JFK and qualities and things like that, and maybe I just. <laughs> Maybe I'm making it too specific. I, I don't know what my issue is actually, but I like your story. tried qualities or like oh. things about his career past yeah. and I just don't know. Maybe I should be searching other things. That was my thing. I just don't know why I should be searching. Because it's supposed to be like yeah, you're the factors. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I thought maybe like his family life or you know like him going to war things like that would yeah. be good to touch. I just don't know how to I thought maybe I could find something civil rights too. I just didn't know. But but. Here's one on civil rights. Yeah. So. So I, I think know. what you want to do is like start, just pulling a few things out and just like just general stuff, okay. and then you'll get some ideas about oh I want to focus on this, and then you go back in and search for a specific. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So maybe just look at like certain things he did in his presence. Yeah. So just start general and then, then kind of narrow it down. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah, I thought I saw one like that, like he had an issue with like infection or something like that, and I wanted to kind of investigate that as well. This article, and just read the abstract, this article explores the issue of how to, how the potent, alluring image of him was constructed. Okay. So, because um, I know like his family also had like a big influence, right? Yes. Yeah. I just know I need to cover enough material to get the front pages, so that was the only Oh, there's, I mean, yeah. You can go on and on about candidates. Alright, maybe I just need to look at this for more than I was doing uh, their other one. This goes one. back to 1964. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> I was doing more of the EBSCO one, and that was the one where I was like, I'm not talking to like it would be like John F. Kennedy Jr. or like like yeah. his son, and I'm like, that's here's one about him being a Catholic. Oh, okay, perfect. So I'll just um, look this one then more. Oh yeah, that'll probably be more helpful than what I was looking. At. Yeah, and then I think you just pick like, as you get some read some background articles. Yeah. And I would just do journal articles, and then if you if you read it and don't even use it, you can still cite it in your yeah. You can still put it in your bibliography, oh, and then from reading that stuff, then you say, okay, these are the three or four or five things I want to focus on. Okay. Then go back in and, and narrow down your search searching. Are we allowed to use like other than journal yeah. articles? Like yeah. Yeah. So you need the five, and then you and then other good sources are great. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you so much. No problem. Let me know. Um, there's a lot to unpack with him. Okay. <laughs> so he's he's a matter of just kind of deciding what the angle. Which focuses. Yeah, which I mean it's true of a lot of presidents, but yeah. him in particular, there's there's a lot of really interesting things. The family families are always important. I think the family's particularly important for him. Yeah. Um, his his uh, his dad was a renegade. 
and did that really influence him in some, yeah. some good ways, but also in some really bad ways? Yeah. I mean, I think I think I think if I don't think he I don't think he's a womanizer. I think he's a womanizer only because his dad was. Okay. Um, and that his dad actually taught him to do that. Gotcha. Okay. Um, a lot of people don't know that. Um, that's super interesting. Um, but he also had kind of a death complex. He thought he was going to die. Yeah, yeah, that's what I noticed. Yeah, and, and he was really sick um, while he was president. So that, that stuff was super interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. So, yeah, just yeah. sorting through that and saying, okay, what am I going to focus on? And, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> 